The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Well, thank you, Chuck. It's an honor to be here with you guys and to lead you in your chapel this morning. I remember doing this as a student, and uh, it's a lot more comfortable as a minister, so uh, yeah, it's good to be here with you guys. Um, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We're going to consider from Isaiah chapter 6, maybe a familiar passage for many of us. Isaiah chapter 6, we'll uh, consider from the first seven verses of that chapter. Before we uh, read, let's bow together and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it gives us light, Lord, and it leads us and guides us. And so we pray now, Father, that you would use it mightily in our hearts and in our lives. Direct us to Christ, our Lord. Magnify him in our hearts. We pray this in his name. Amen. Isaiah 6, beginning at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. As a young man in high school, I, I loved playing football. Playing football was something that just seemed to come natural to me. I, I couldn't dribble a ball. I couldn't put a ball through a hoop. I couldn't swing a bat or pitch a ball. I could run with the ball. And I loved running with the ball. I loved weaving in and out of defenses, running through defenders, past defenders. And what I came to really love was the cheer of the crowd. There was something about that roar. It satisfied me. It drove me. What, through my football experience, what I came to learn that came natural to me was the pride and the satisfaction that I received from the praise of those who watched me play football. Now, I think if we are all honest, we would all have to admit that pride comes natural to us. We're sinners. Pride is something that does indeed come natural to us. And so maybe you take pride not in your athletic abilities as I did as a young man. Maybe you take pride in uh, your accomplishments 
Maybe you take pride in what you know, your knowledge or your intellectual ability. I remember as a student here taking a bit of pride in the fact that I was studying here at Westminster Seminary. Westminster has a prestigious name, right? It's a great seminary. And one of the uh, cliches and critiques that uh, we heard as students when we would speak to other students at other seminaries was, Westminster creates scholars, but not pastors. And there was a sense in which we kind of took a little bit of pride in that. We wanted to think of ourselves as, as scholars. We wanted to think of ourselves as being highly academic. But you see, there's reason why the Bible tells us that God opposes the proud. The Lord opposes the proud. Yes, he gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. And so it should be no surprise to us that at the beginning of the ministry of the prophet Isaiah, God provides Isaiah with a humbling vision of who God is. And I think this vision that we are presented with here in the scriptures is a, a reminder of us and a reminder to us of us needing to be humble before our Lord as maybe he calls us to particular ministries and works and callings in our own lives. Now, to be sure, this vision that God presents Isaiah with wasn't just to humble him, but it was to give him an awe-inspiring vision of who the Lord God is. And here's the thing. Whenever we're confronted with who God is, it should move us to humility, right? It should move us to humility. Because it's true, we can't have a true estimation of ourselves without having first a true estimation of who God is. It was Charles Spurgeon who once said, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the, intention, the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. Charles Spurgeon says. And that's really what we see in the text here before us this morning. The prophet Isaiah was called by God to bring a difficult message to the people of God, a message that would harden the people. Yes, it would soften the hearts of some, but it would be a message that hardened many of the people who heard that message. And we here today have been granted with a similar message, the message of the salvation and redemption that is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that, too, is a message that leads some to harden their hearts while others to receive the wonderful news of what Christ has done for us. And so as those who will bring that message, we, too, need to come and bring that with a humbling idea of who God is. We need to come to those that we preach to, those that we teach, those that we speak to on the streets in humility, having a true, accurate perspective and estimation of ourselves because we have a true estimation of who our God is. And so this beautiful text begins with saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The setting of this vision is the throne room, 
the throne room of God. Now, I've never been in a throne room before. I don't know if you have maybe traveled places and been in a throne room, but I imagine every throne room has a, a measure of majesty and power to it. But you see, this isn't just any throne room, is it? This isn't the throne room of the kings and queens of the world. This isn't uh, the throne rooms that, that require the, the pomp and the pageantry that the kings and queens of this earth require to make their throne room seem powerful and majestic. This is the throne room of the Lord God. And with this throne room, really, it's not even the throne room that we're directed to in this passage, but we're really directed to the one who sits upon the throne. And what does the text tell us about the one who sits on the throne, but that he is high and lifted up? He's the one who fills the throne room. He's high and lifted up. That's, that's language which speaks of the transcendence of God, doesn't it? Isaiah 57, 15 says, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. God is transcendent. God is high and lifted up. He's separate from us. He's entirely distinct, distinct from us in every way. To put this in uh, our maybe contemporary vernacular the Lord God is awesome. He's awesome. Now that term awesome is a word that I hardly use. I try to avoid it. Today, everything seems awesome. The word is so overused, and particularly for Christians. I find it funny, but whenever I hear someone use the term awesome, I ask them, are, are you a Christian? And eight out of ten times, they're Christian people who use the term awesome. Well, however, many, however much we might overuse the term awesome. That word is an accurate description of who God is. He's awesome. He's awesome. He's high and lifted up. And to impress this point upon our prophet further, the text goes on to tell us about the train of the robe of the Lord filling the temple. It's long been thought that the, the garments of royalty were symbolic of, the, of that royalty's rule and reign. Well, here's the train of the Lord, and it fills the temple, fills it completely. This is absolute rule, absolute sovereignty, absolute dominion. And then the text presents us with the servants of the Lord who dwell in his presence. It says, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. Literally, seraphim it means flaming ones. These are angelic hosts who, who look like flames, or they look like they are on fire. And it's probably the case, most likely, because of the presence of the glory of God uh, in which these, these creatures dwell. And yet, although these creatures dwell in the presence of the Lord, notice they cover themselves, don't they? Imagine these creatures with me. With two wings, they, they fly. With two, they cover their feet. With two, they cover their face. These are creatures who are completely covered by their wings. Completely covered. Reflecting the, the glory of God. Think of Moses coming down the mountain and his face shining. These are the flaming ones. 
Now, however fantastic these creatures might seem, their, their appearance isn't what the text is focusing on, uh, on, is it? What's really what the text is directing us to is what these creatures are declaring. And what do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Much has uh, been made of what uh, the holiness of God really means. Some have said that it refers to his, his moral purity, the moral purity of God. Others have said that it refers again to the transcendence of God. And still some describe it as, uh, or, or use it to describe the uniqueness of the Lord. I think the holiness of God refers to all of the above. It's a way of God distinguishing himself as God. Listen to how one author says it. He says, it's the dawning awareness that God is God and we are not. It's the realization that he is other. God is other. This text is presenting that to us, right? He is majestic. He is all-powerful. He is exalted. He is awesome. He is absolutely sovereign, and we are not. It is God and God alone who is holy, holy, holy. He is utterly and completely unique unto himself, perfect in every way, complete, sufficient in every way. Now, in the face of the God who is holy, 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 what is the only response that man can muster? Humility. Sheer humility. That same author I referred to a moment ago writes, the sudden overwhelming sense of creatureliness and sinfulness is the consistent experience of those who are brought into the divine presence. That's where Isaiah is in this text, isn't he? In the face of this vision of the glorious, holy, holy, holy God, Isaiah is humbled to his core. Verse 5 says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's a realization of Isaiah's, isn't it? He realizes who God is, and with that knowledge, he realizes who he is. He curses himself. Isaiah curses himself in this passage. Maybe you're familiar with this passage, and if you are, then you know Isaiah already has recorded five curses in the previous chapter. If you look over at chapter 5, beginning at verse 8, we see the first of five. Verse 8, woe to those who join house to house. Verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning. Verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. Verse 20, woe. Verse 21, woe. Verse 22, woe. But now in the face of, of this vision of God, Isaiah can't help but curse himself. Woe is me, he says. I'm undone. He stands there before God and probably not standing. He's probably laying face down, prostrate before the Lord, realizing who God is and who he is. Isaiah's humbled. And I think this text presents for us the question, are we humbled? Are we humbled this morning? Does a vision like this humble our pride? 
that pride that comes so natural to us. We may not have had an experience of uh, a personal experience of a vision of God like Isaiah had, but we do have this text before us. We have the infallible and errant word of God recorded for us of who God is, who he is. Does this scripture produce humility in our hearts? Have we come through the vision of God presented to us in his word to an overwhelming sense of our own creatureliness and sinfulness? But you see, it's not only the holiness of God that should produce humility in us, but so should the grace of God as well. With the prophet humbly before God, acknowledging his sin and ruin, the holy God condescends to the prophet Isaiah. Verse 6 says, One of the seraphim flew, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, touches the mouth of Isaiah and says, Behold, this has touched your lips. And then Isaiah hears the greatest words that a sinner can ever hear. Your guilt, your sin is taken away. It's atoned for. What is it about this this coal that can take away guilt and sin. It's a burning coal from the altar, right? It's a burning coal from a sacrifice that was offered on the altar. We today know this side of Jesus Christ that such sacrifices were types and shadows of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so like all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, this sacrifice points us to the perfect sacrifice of Christ that takes away all of our sins. You see, we here today may not have been with Isaiah when he saw that glorious vision of God. We may never see a vision like this, but we have Christ. We have Christ, Christ presented to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. In fact, it's the disciple John who tells us in John 12 that it was Jesus Christ that Isaiah saw in this vision. And we have Christ presented to us in the pages of the perfect word of God. We have Christ mediated to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And in Christ, by faith, we see the glorious majesty and holiness of God. Because in Christ, we see the holiness of God as well as his graciousness. In Christ, God is both the just and the justifier, isn't he? He's both transcendent and imminent. He's both holy and, get this, humble. In Christ, we see the fullest revelation of who God is. For in Christ, this God who is holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, doesn't just present us with a vision of himself, but he gives himself to us. He gives himself fully and completely for us and for our sin. And Christ, the glorious, holy God, condescends to us and he saves sinners such as us. This God, the God who is other, the God who is beautifully majestic, all-powerful, awesome, almighty, sovereign, condescends to us in taking on the form of of a servant. In Christ, God becomes man, humbling himself. He becomes the servant of God. Again, in Christ, 
God is both holy and humble. This is the vision that God has given to us in the pages of Scripture. This is the vision that we have received. And in Christ, we see why the holy God can say in Isaiah 57, 15, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high places and holy place, and I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So let me ask you this morning, what does the vision of God granted to you in Christ do for you? Does it humble you? Does it humble us? Are we moved like Isaiah to sheer humility? Does this vision of Christ move us to acknowledge our sin, to say of ourselves, woe is me. I too am a sinner. I too know my pride. I too need the cleansing work of Christ in my heart. Does it lead us to forsake ourselves, to humble ourselves, to trust in him fully and completely? You see, friends, if we claim the name of Christ, if we desire to serve him in our ministries, in our studies, and through our lives, we must be willing to humbly bow to our Lord and Savior who served us. Faith in Christ is beholding Christ as both holy and humble. So I want to encourage you this, this morning, cling to Christ. Cling to your holy God. Cling to your God who has served you. And through clinging to this vision of Christ, he will bear the fruit of humility in your life and in your calling. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this vision that you have given to us. A beautiful, majestic vision of yourself. And we thank you for the vision that you've given to us of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you, Father, that you save sinners such as us. We thank you that by your Spirit, Lord, you have worked in our hearts to humble us, to help us to acknowledge, to allow us to acknowledge the work, the redemption, the salvation that we need in Jesus Christ. I pray for each of us here, Lord, that as we go on through our days, as we wrestle with the pride that so easily ensnares us, I pray you remind us, Lord, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who humbled himself and saved us. And may that mind of Christ be ours in him. We pray this all. Amen. Copyright 2022, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.